Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, here we go. There we go. Galatians on Earth, we're going to break into part two here. And, uh, you know, you need to be patient with me because we're not exactly going to get to the book yet. And so we're, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to continue to build that foundation. We need to get some perspective you know, there are things, there are elements that we need to possess before we go into this book that are absolutely critical. So that when we go, the things that Paul intended to say are the very things that we receive. And the things he didn't say are the things that we're going to reject. And so this is just critical that we, we, we enter with caution, especially with Peter's warning. And so this is how we're going to just spend today and just really, it's kind of getting slow. But the wheels will get going uh, as we get into next week. Things will start to kind of unravel uh, faster and faster. Uh, that being said, uh, if you remember last week, we broke into Acts 15. And in Acts 15, we, we saw men from Judea came down to Antioch. And they started to tell the brethren that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. And we saw the controversy erupt. We saw the fact that Paul and Barnabas would not back down. They contended them. They went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them saying, stop, time out. They don't have to be circumcised. The contention got so hot. It just got hotter and hotter. They said, the only way to resolve this, we need to go up to Yerushalayim. We need to go up to the highest court in the land, to the apostles and elders. And really following, as we saw last week, following that precept, that wisdom that is embedded in Torah, that this is how matters are to be dealt with. And so we're going to pick it up there. We're going to continue on in verse 3. And, and Paul and Barnabas, they're making their way to Yerushalayim. And this is what we read. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. Verse 4. And when they had come to Yerushalayim, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. Okay, so get this. I mean, what's being described here? The church, the ecclesia, the church, the apostles, the elders. Everyone who needs to be there is present. The entire church is present. And here you have Paul and Barnabas in their midst. And they're telling him all the wonderful things, the miracles and the wonders and the awesome things that their eyes have seen in regard to what the Lord was doing with both the Jew and the Gentiles. Now, this is phenomenal. If you can just imagine, bring yourself into that first century with the crowd just totally circled around Paul and Barnabas and them delivering this. And not just that, but then going on forward to say, but listen, there was men who came out from you. They came to Antioch. And they were telling the brethren that unless they're circumcised, they can't be saved. Now, what's interesting is within this group, this ecclesia that was in Yerushalayim, there were believing Pharisees present. You will notice something. They're the first ones to respond to Paul and Barnabas' testimony. And this is what they say. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They're not unclear. They, they heard Paul and Barnabas' testimony that men came down and they said, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. These Pharisees hear the testimony. They rise up and said, that's exactly right. That's what has to happen. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why are these Pharisees 
believing Pharisees, why are they so adamant that the Gentiles coming into Israel, coming into the faith, that they have to be circumcised? We can answer that question by posing another. What is a Pharisee? What is a Pharisee? He is an expert in the Torah. This is one who devoted his life to the study of Torah, to the teaching of Torah, and even in matters of judgment. Because they knew the Torah. And so, why are these Pharisees being so adamant? The answer is because they know the Torah. And what is within the Torah? This very command. So let's take a look at this in Genesis 17, verse 1. When Avram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Avram and said to him, Ani El Shaddai, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Dropping down to verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you, and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. It's pretty clear. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. In other words, what the circumcision is, it's evidence you are in relationship with me. You, this is evidence that the promise that I made to you is legit. This is real. And so he's given this bit of evidence. This is the sign of the covenant. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or, listen to this, bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Okay, this is very clear. You look at this, we're dealing with people who are not physical descendants of Abraham. Gentiles. See, you're either a descendant of Abraham or you're not. You're either Israel or you're not. There is Jew and there is Gentile. There's everyone else. And this is explicit. And so as we're going through, even the ones that are bought with money from the Gentiles, who is not their descent, this one is to be circumcised. Moving on to verse 13. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. Must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. You look at the text right within Torah, and it could not be clearer. This could not be clearer. It's unambiguous. A child, a small child couldn't understand what was just laid out in the scenario. And so bring yourself into the first century. Put yourself amongst the crowd and listen to the whispers as Paul and Barnabas are declaring their testimony that they're given. Could you imagine all the whispers and going, what are they talking about? This is not what the Torah says. And then the Pharisee is rising up and saying, no. Brothers, listen. You're talking about a situation, the exact situation that the Torah deals with. All you need to do, okay, we have Gentiles that are coming into the faith. They're being grafted in. The Torah says they need to be circumcised. The Torah is actually, it's set up for this perfect situation. We have the answer. There's no question to it. So simple. And that's the other thing when you think about it. And this will come into play as we get deeper and deeper into this message. This is critical. The fact that the Pharisees are so adamant about what must be done to the Gentiles 
tells you what they understood was happening to the Gentiles. What do I mean by that statement? I mean that they were coming into Israel. That they were literally coming into Abraham's household. They were not foggy on that matter, which is why they're so adamant about this command. See, because they understand that. Going on to verse 14. They understood it so well. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You remember what they said in Acts 15.1? Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. What did this just say? Unless you're circumcised, you will be cut off. You will not be saved. Exactly what the Pharisees are professing and telling everyone at this council is exactly what the Torah says. Riddle me this. How can Paul possibly go against the letter of the law? Paul is a Pharisee. When you read the book of Acts, what you will realize long after, long into his ministry, he never denounces being a Pharisee. Read Acts. He said, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He never renounces his Pharisaical identity. He's a Pharisee. He's not just any Pharisee. He's a Pharisee of all Pharisees. Why do I say that? We're told that Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the grandson of the great Hillel. In other words, if you're going to go into, into Pharisaic school and you want the best teaching you could possibly be given, Paul was given it. He was given the best teaching available. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And I guarantee you this, he knew the law better than anyone that was in that crowd. Devoted his life to it. So riddle me this, how can Paul, being a Pharisee, knowing exactly what the Torah said, how can he take the stance that he is taking and totally disregarding a blatant commandment in the Torah? You know what the answer to that is? It's really simple. The apostle Paul saw something. He actually experienced something that was so radical, so miraculous, that he could come up even after knowing the blatant command in Torah and say, well, hold on, time out. The Gentiles, this is a situation, gentlemen. I'm telling you, they don't have to become circumcised. They don't have to do it. The question is, is what did he see? What did Paul see that can make him take this absolute radical position. Well, let me show you in Colossians 2.11. We find out. In him. And keep in mind. Paul is writing to Gentiles. In Yeshua. Oh you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. By the circumcision of Mashiach. You want to know what Paul saw? This is what he saw. He saw that they were circumcised and not just circumcised, but they were circumcised by one. No one could possibly be greater than by God himself. Not by man, but these Gentiles are being circumcised by God himself. Let that sink in. And so in other words, he's already sees that, hey guys, when he's out and he's testifying to this, Paul's like looking at these Gentiles. He already knows that God himself is taking care of it. What are you going to do that's greater than God? Nothing. This is why Paul is taking the standpoint. Let's take this discussion into a deeper level. And we can get a better, even a better understanding 
of, of how all of this works. And I want to take you to Romans. And there, Paul is going to talk about circumcision. And what he says is, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Fascinating statement. Paul is recognizing his father, Abraham, and all his Jewish brethren, their father came into right standing with God while not being circumcised. He was uncircumcised. This is Maaseh Avot Siman Lebanim. Remember that? The deeds or the actions of the fathers are a sign for the children. This is what Paul is saying. He is looking at Abraham and his action and what God did with him as a prophetic template of what he would ultimately do in the future. This is powerful. And he's drawing this in. He says, look at our father. He was justified in the sight of the living God, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And Paul is saying, there's your prophetic template. So to help you understand what's going on here. Now he continues in verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision. I'll pay close attention. A seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had. While still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. The thing I want to draw your attention to is what I've highlighted here. Paul defines circumcision in detail. And pay close attention because you're going to have to take this with you ultimately through the rest of this series. What is circumcision? It is the seal of the righteousness of the faith. The seal of the righteousness of the faith. In other words, it's a trophy. I always use this analogy when I come to this passage. When you have men running in a race, let's see, 100 men, they go and run a race, only one wins. The evidence that the one won is the trophy. He can walk around and he says, I've achieved, I'm, I, I took first place in this race. Well, he has the trophy to prove it. You could have the other, you could have 50 guys all saying, well, yeah, we took first place. You know, we did, but they don't have a trophy. This one that took first place, he says, I have the trophy. Understand what circumcision is. It is the trophy. Abraham was given this memorial trophy, declaring his faith in the one true God, that he believed. When God came out and said, I'll make your descendants as stars of heaven, Abraham believed. And because of that, that's why God gave him this trophy. So it is the seal of the righteousness of the faith. Absolutely beautiful. Let's go a little bit deeper here and take you into the Greek. And when we look at the Greek word for seal, it is suffragas. And the inflected is the, the, the uh, suffragita. Suffragas is a seal, a signet ring, an impression of a seal. The proof. It's the proof, as in the proof of ownership. You guys need to start understanding the reality of the definition of circumcision. If you understand this definition and what Paul is actually ultimately conveying, you're going to understand perfectly what is happening to the Gentiles and how 
everything that's happening is still in accordance with Torah, though it seems like a total blatant disregard for it. It's not. So circumcision that was given to Abraham, Paul tells us, it's a seal. It's this suffragase. It's this proof. It's the proof of ownership. He is God's, period. And God is his God. Now, I want to take you to the book of Ephesians. And I want to unpack this in a Gentile realm. Paul's book to the Ephesians is obviously written to Gentiles. And he has this to say, In Yeshua, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So they heard it, right? The gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed. Does this sound familiar? I mean, this is a setup. This is a perfect setup. This sounds exactly like Abraham. When God presented him... Self to Abraham, when he presented the promise, they believed. Well, isn't that interesting? As the Jews were bringing out the gospel of Yeshua, Gentiles were just believing. They were like, they were being like their father, Abraham. The same characteristics they're displaying, all right? But listen to what he goes on and says. He says this, you were sealed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Suffragase they take. This is this is the stem. It's suffragase. It's the same word. You were sealed. How? Through faith. In other words, he's telling them exactly what he told the Colossians. You were circumcised. You were circumcised. You were sealed. Now look at this. He goes on in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession possession to the praise of his glory? See, it's the proof. You understand what this anointing of the Holy Spirit is? It's the circumcision of God. It is the proof that you will enter into eternal life. Again, this is what the Apostle Paul saw. As he's going out ministering with Barnabas, he is seeing the Holy Spirit fall upon these Gentiles, and he knew what it meant. It's their proof. They've been sealed by God himself. They've been redeemed. They're going to heaven. There's nothing more to discuss. It's a really powerful symbol. In fact, the prophets prophesied of this. In Isaiah 8.16, bind up the testimony. Oh, seal the law among my disciples. What's interesting about this whole passage in that seal, when you look at this in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version, you can trace it all the way back to sphragase, this seal. This is the word that's used. This is the stem that is used. But this is prophecy, and specifically, the context of the preceding verses in 14 and 15 talk about that this Messiah would come. This is a messianic passage. The Mashiach would come, and he would be a stumbling block to both houses of Israel, as a trap and as a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then it says this. Isn't that fascinating? So with the coming of this Mashiach, this is going to happen. Bind up the testimony, seal the law, among my disciples. So we're told that something's going to happen with the coming of the Messiah. The people are going to start getting sealed. The law is going to be sealed within them. What is the new covenant? And we're going to get in this much deeper later on in, in this series. We're not going to do it now. But Jeremiah 31, 31 says, it talks about the new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Where he writes their Torah on their hearts and on their minds. 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall man teach his brother and say, know the Lord. No, you're to know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And isn't that interesting? Because when you go to 1 John 2, 3, now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. Isn't that interesting? See, because that's the very seal. That's the very circumcision, the mark of God, where he's circumcising the hearts of men, writing his Torah on them. They're walking according to the commandments of God. They're doing them. You want the Torah. You desire the Torah. And we're at this time of Hanukkah, which I said, you know, the the cry of Mattathias to fight the Antichrist, to go out against the Antichrist was, all who are zealous for the Torah come to me. That is the cry. All who are zealous for the Torah. There is something happening right now at the end of the age. The spirit of Antichrist has risen up and that same exact call has risen to the challenge. Because there are people all over, Jew and Gentile, that are discovering the Torah. And they're saying there's something with this. And that is a move of the Holy Spirit. This is a move, this is an authentic move of the Holy Spirit. All right? So, getting back to this. This helps you understand why Paul and Barnabas contended with the Pharisees on this matter. You know, getting back to the council meeting, we're going to continue here. And Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're uh, telling the assembly about the wonderful things God has done. We see the Pharisees respond. Nope, nope, they need to be circumcised. But now the apostles are going to answer. And we get to verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute, I have to stop there. When there had been much dispute, appreciate how controversial this really is. Appreciate the fact that people, they're seeing themselves, I'm standing on the Torah. I cannot budge. And this is within the apostles and elders. Think about how controversial this really was. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren. So here comes Peter. You know that a good while ago, God chose us, uh, chose among us, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Isn't it interesting? You know, growing up, I used to, I was under the impression that the apostle Paul was the first apostle to the Gentiles. Not so. The first apostle to the Gentiles was Peter. That's pretty profound in more ways than most people recognize. And why do I say that? You remember the whole Cornelius event and Peter going in and eating with uncircumcised men. As you get to chapter 11, his own brethren call him out. They absolutely go after him. They're livid that he would do such a thing. What are you doing? And Peter tells them a whole story of what God did with these Gentiles and how he literally was speaking the gospel of Yeshua and the Holy Spirit just fell down upon them in power. It's like, what am I supposed to do with that? And if God tells me to go, who am I to fight against God? And then he said to his brother and rejoice. Now, I share this with you. Because if you think that the whole, the, the whole three men, these unclean, these uncircumcised men coming to Peter's house, okay, and that's where that vision, the sheet coming down three times. If you think that was just whatever, this was just, a, you know, Peter's got to go to the Gentile. No, 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 no. There's, there's way more to the story that you need to understand. Peter being sent to Cornelius, the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. See, because as now we come to this council later on, 
What does Peter have? Evidence. He has a testimony now to offer in the most controversial thing that ever happened in the first century with Gentiles in this issue of do they need to be circumcised or not? The most controversial thing ever. And isn't that interesting that the Lord already prepared Peter and his testimony for this moment? That is powerful. And so Peter comes on the scene. He tells them, and we continue on in verse 8. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In other words, Peter is saying here that Not even our own fathers were justified in the flesh. They weren't justified in the law and circumcision. Why? Because they all failed to keep it. Right? Romans 3.23, For all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 14, there's none. There's none who does good. There's none righteous. And Ecclesiastes 7.20, There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. Psalm 130, uh, verse 3. Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? I mean, we could go on. I mean, you look at this, and everyone has fallen short. This is where Peter is going with this. We can't be justified this way. Romans 2.25. Paul sheds light on this concept. Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. This is what Peter is saying. When he says... You're attempting to put a yoke on the disciples next that neither our forefathers nor us could even do. We could not be justified in this manner, in the flesh. Well, Peter ends his discourse with the following. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Going to verse 12. Then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and, and, and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? So first, Peter rises up in this total, at this high point of contention amongst the apostles and the elders. Peter rises up, gives his testimony. Now we get Paul and Barnabas. They rise up and they further tell them what they saw and give. They're submitting evidence in this court case. Okay? Now we continue. Verse 13. And after that, they had become silent. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Now, this this is the time where you really want to pay attention. Because this James isn't just anyone. And when he says, listen to me, you better believe every single person in that court. All the apostles, all the elders, they immediately stopped and gave him full attention. Why do I say that? He was Nazi. He was the prince of the court. This was a man that was so highly respected, so revered. They they had likened him to a camel in the sense that he had camel's knees because he was prostrated before God day and night. In fact, I take it a step further. The early church fathers, they spent a lot of time talking about him. They spent a lot of time articulating the thoughts of how revered he was to the extent that they actually mentioned... Eusebius mentions that many Jews that were living in the first century 
held him in such high regard that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they said it was because of what happened to James. What happened to James? Yaakov was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple by the priesthood, the Kohanim. They threw him off. He didn't die when he landed. So they started, the, the men at the, at the ground started to pick up stones to stone him. And then a guy with a club came and clubbed him to death. You want to talk about the most horrifying way to die? Yaakov did it. But here's my point. What they said, they, they revered him so much as a righteous and holy man of God. They actually said, well, the reason the temple is destroyed is because what we did to him, what our brethren did to him. Now, ultimately, we know that's not why the temple was destroyed. But I just put this man and how revered he is into context. Into context. James is the head of the court, and he says, brethren, listen to me. And so he's going to be the final authority. He has come up last, and he is going to give this uh, conclusion. So in verse 14, we pick it up. Shimon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all of these things known to God from eternity are all his works. Stop. James, the Nazi of the court, and this is so imperative. Because this is going to put into context the rest of the series. What does James do to persuade his brethren? Yes, he draws attention. Listen, Peter, at first he took him, he's going to bring him to Gentiles. And Peter gave his testimony. That's great. But then what James does is he goes to the word of God to show his brethren the prophets have prophesied about this moment. To establish what they're going to say to establish the reality that they're not going to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. What James is doing is he's going to the word. Now I'm going to tell you, that's what carries weight. And, and when you understand something about scripture and how it works, the, the deeper and deeper that you get into study, you don't just read one scripture and create an entire theology out of it and one doctrine. It doesn't work. If you're of that opinion, guess what? You can't agree with the new covenant. Like the Samaritans. See, the Samaritans only believed the Torah was scripture. They would not receive any further revelation of the living God. So they denied the prophets. This is why Samaritans do not sacrifice. And they sacrifice to this day on Mount Gerizim. They do not sacrifice in Jerusalem. The reason is, is you will find Jerusalem nowhere in the Torah. That that is the place that they're to go. You have to wait for the later revelation of that. You have to wait for the prophets. The Naveen Ketuvim and the writings. That's the only time that we, we see that happening. And so this is a critical aspect of what we see that we need to look at the totality of Scripture. To properly interpret where things are at and what God is doing. Because God will leave a witness for himself in the written word. And this is what James recognized. There is a witness. There is a testimony of the prophets. And certainly he could have gone to the prophet Isaiah. Because the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 says he would do, the Lord would do a new thing. Something that's never been done. Brand new thing. 
where the jackals and ostriches would be drinking living water, this Mayim Chaim, in a desert. See, this is why Peter, in his vision in Acts 10, he saw these unclean animals coming down. And, and, and the Lord saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. It was a direct association to what was prophesied in Isaiah 43, that the jackals and ostriches would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. Powerful. So we understand these things through the totality of God's word. Now moving on to verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Turning to God. In the Greek, we read epistrephusen, epiton theon. The reason I put the Greek up here is you need to understand epistrepho, that's them, epistrepho, it means to turn in the process of. These Gentiles are literally in this process. This is what James recognized. Don't trouble them. They don't need to be circumcised because they're in this process right now. They're actively, the verb, they're actively turning to the Lord God. If you were to take it in the Hebrew, the equivalent would be shuv or teshuva, repentance. So they're actively doing this. They're actively turning to God. And so here we see that James declares as Nasi, the head of the court, they don't need to become circumcised. However, James is not done. There are requirements that he is going to pass judgment on. There are requirements that he is going to impose and implement to these Gentiles who are epistrepho, who are turning to the Lord. Acts 15.20, we find out, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Okay. So James picks four commandments that are be placed on the Gentiles as they're in this process of turning. But you have to admit, it's a little mysterious. I mean, it's a lot mysterious. It's so mysterious, it draws you into it, which is kind of the intent here. It's drawing you in. And I say mysterious, why? Where are the Ten Commandments? Where are the basic ones? If I was to send you guys out and to preach the gospel and to do these things, one of the first things you're go-to as a person, a person's asking, well, you know, how do, I, how do I walk with the Lord and do this? Most of you are just going to come out and say, well, look at the Ten Commandments, because this is the heartbeat of the Torah. This is very simple. You guys need to pay close attention, because if we're going to share the gospel, you better get this under lock and key right now, because this was established in Jerusalem by the apostles, the judges who will judge Israel. This hasn't gone anywhere. In other words, this is incumbent upon us today that we understand what is being commanded. If, in fact, we want to declare the gospel. Because the same thing is supposed to happen. And so looking at these four things, I mean, there is no, there, oh, there's only one commandment here that you could even liken into the Ten Commandments, which would be, thou shalt not commit adultery. But the rest of them are absent. There's nothing about you know, uh, making graven images. There's nothing about taking the Lord's name in vain. There's nothing about honoring your mother and father. There's nothing about killing somebody. Isn't that a good thing not to do? Stealing? It's a good thing not to do. Coveting? Bearing false witness? All absent. So, these four things should be drawing you in in a mysterious fashion of, in, in, to investigate. You know, I've actually, just as a side note, I have had discussions that are hard to believe uh, in regard to this passage, but I've had discussions with gentlemen, and I wish I could say it was just one. 
But I have had discussions with men who have come to me and say, Daniel, you don't understand. Gentiles don't have to keep anything in the Torah. In fact, all you need to do is go to the council at Jerusalem, and it was established exactly what Gentiles can do. And my response is always, so wait a second, you can kill somebody? Well, we shouldn't, but it's not incumbent upon us. I mean, you, you, you cannot make this stuff up. No one's challenged the theology. They just simply want to look at this. These are four things. The real funny conversation that I had is that I said, oh, you have to do four things. Well, what are they? And the gentleman couldn't even respond to me what those four things were. I mean, it's really an amazement. And so this is something that we really need to dig into. And the first thing that we really need to ask is this mysterious, why these four commandments? Why these four commandments? There is something specific about them and the urgency before anything else is mentioned, these are mentioned. Well, let's take a look at this. And the first thing I want to point out here is three of the four commandments are food loss. Things polluted by idols, things strangled, and from blood. Three of the four things are food laws. But they're not just any food laws. So one of the things that we're going to talk about later on in this study is the traditional way of Jewish, successful Jewish teaching and what they would pride themselves in. Good teachers of the law, good teachers of the word of God, of the Torah and the prophets, took pride in the fact that they could take a comprehensive list of commandments, a comprehensive requirements, and they could boil it down and simplify it for you. Just make it easy. You know, like the story of Hillel and Shammai, where the Gentile comes to him, and he says to Shammai, teach me the Torah while standing on one foot. Shammai runs him off with a builder's cubit. This Gentile goes to Hillel then and says, teach me Torah while standing on one foot. And Hillel responds, that which you hate, don't do it to your brother. He took the whole Torah, condensed it to one commandment. That's what they're known for. The Jews, they took pride. The great teachers of the day, this is what they did. Yeshua does it. The Apostle Paul does it. And now you're going to see James does it. Why? Because really, these three, four, these three food laws that are being commanded, they are summing up the entirety of the food laws. James just drew a perimeter around how clean food becomes defiled. How clean food becomes defiled. Leviticus 11 tells us the things that God has created to be received. And they're all established on the testimony of two. Whether they're fish in the sea with fins and scales. Or whether they are animals with hooves. You have to have a split hoof. You have to chew the cud. You know, you have a rabbit. It chews the cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof. It's unclean. And so what James does here. By taking these three specific commandments, he draws a perimeter around the entire food laws. At the top, we have things polluted by idols. Understand something. It could be clean. It could be a cow. It could be a deer. It could be a goat. But if that deer, goat, cow in any way has been offered to an idol, it's unclean. Clean food has just now become defiled. Same thing with things strangled. You could have a cow. It's clean for us to eat. God has sanctified it by his word. But if it's strangled, you cannot eat it. It's unclean, which is really related to the next, and that is blood. You know, I, I always use the, the deal that I grew up with. Uh, you know, my family was avid hunters. 
and fishermen and so on and so forth. And many of you who know me today know I've kind of left my roots a little bit. <laughs> Be that as it may. Uh, but friends going out and when you kill your first deer, you drink the blood. And some of you know this, some of you may not know this, but your first kill for the deer is it's common to drink the cup of blood. You have to, you bring a cup, it's a big ceremony, it's a big deal. Well, the Torah tells us that is abominable. It's deer is clean, I can eat the meat, but I can't do what these men are doing in the woods. Unfortunately, the Lord protected me from that. Oh, Now, what I want to do is I just want to briefly cover these, these food laws. And some of you may understand them just fine, but I'm covering this because you need to teach this. This is gospel stuff. This is 101. And we need to know how to teach this. And so we're going to go through some of these scripturally. We're going to look at what it has to say. And we're going to begin with things polluted by idols. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul addresses this very issue. Observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifices, uh, who eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to an idol is anything? In other words, he's just saying, look at Israel according to the flesh. Look at the Kohanim. Look at these priests. Are not those who, who eat of the sacrifice, partakers of the altar? That's a powerful statement because what are altars? Altars are places where you draw near to God. Altars are places that you thank God with thanksgiving. Altars are places you confess the Lord. This is the ultimate place of intimacy with God, going to the altar. And what he's saying is when you go to the altar, and let's just say an offeror brings his offering to the priest, the priest kills it, the priest, there's a priest portion... You can read Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 18. There's a portion that's for the priest, and he partakes of it. But the whole ceremony is of God. This is all unto him, in honor of him. The, the offeror, if it's a peace offering, he'll have a peace. But it's all centered around that God. And so he makes this point, okay? But then he says, what am I saying? Is that an idol anything, or is that offered an idol? Now, Paul's making, he, he goes deeper into this two chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and he basically says, we know, we're in the know, and when we look at these idols, they're carved by man's head, they're nothing. They're inventions of man. They're nothing. He doesn't, Paul is very careful not to give any credence to these false idols, because they're nothing. However, listen very carefully what he goes on to say in verse 20. Rather, that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So while we know that these images that men have carved on their own, make no mistake, there is an entity behind that is that is receiving the worship. And these are the demons. And so when they offer to these gods, which are total fictions of demons and of man's minds, the offering is going somewhere. This is what Paul's bringing to the table. And what he's saying, therefore, you cannot eat things sacrificed to idols because you cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. This is off limits. The argument is over right here. Now, he does go on to say, he's going to get practical here. 
verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And you think about who God is in, in provoking the Lord to jealousy. He says he's a consumed. Deuteronomy 4 says he's a consuming fire, a jealous God. Exodus 34 literally says that his name is Kana. That's literally one of the names given to the Lord is Kana, jealous. He is jealous. That's who he is. Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Now, I love this because he's getting practical. You have, okay, this is to the Corinthians. They're living in Achaia, okay, Corinth. It's the pagan epicenter of the world. They're surrounded by pagans. Practicality is very helpful at this moment. And so you you go to the meat market, don't ask questions for conscience sake, because the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. So as they're going to the meat market, the intent is, is you look for hamburger, you look for lamb chops, all these things that God created to be received with thanksgiving. You're not looking to say, hey, Butcher, come here. Was this offered to an idol? Paul says you don't have to do that. Although I will add this. If it has a halal sticker on it, you can't eat it. You've been notified. And so you start seeing these things at Costco where uh, halal, this Islamic blessed food, where they bless it in the name of Allah. You can't eat this food, people. And so if you find out that it's halal, or you find out that it's been offered to any other God, it's forbidden for you, all right? So if you know, verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. You know, and I've had gentlemen uh, discussions about this that saying, well, see, and actually with Jewish believers, which is really ironic, uh, it's, it's not common, but it, it happens where they say, well, this is what Paul, Paul said, eat whatever set before you. So if I go to a friend's house and they slap a pig in front of me, I'm going to eat it because I don't want to offend them or whatever. I want to be very clear on something. That is not what Paul is addressing. Talk about ripping a passage out of context. Again, do what James did. You must look at the totality of scripture. Scripture must interpret scripture. Scripture must support your interpretation. If it goes against it, you have a bigger problem. This is not what Paul is saying. And just to point out something else about this, read Luke 10. Luke 10, when Yeshua commissions the 70 to go out, sends them out two by two to preach the gospel while he is here on earth, he tells them the exact same thing. He tells them when you go into a house, eat whatever is set before you. Now, clearly, was Yeshua saying that in the context? Well, if someone slaps a pig, you're supposed to eat it? They knew better than that. They had come and said, absolutely not. They would not have done that. And we know they didn't do that because Peter, later on in Acts 10, says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. It doesn't work. All right? So looking at this, he tells them on a practical level, eat whatever is set before you. But if anyone says to you, oh, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. He quoted that twice now. Just kind of package it. And acknowledging the authority of the Lord 
And everything that we do is in honor of him. The earth is the Lord. These things are the Lord in all its fullness. I'm not going to eat something that's offered to an idol because I'm not honoring him. I'm not acknowledging that the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. It's really simple. And so here you see this requirement. If someone tells you it's been offered an idol, it's unclean. You had a piece of, you know, hamburger. You have a beautiful steak. It's looking at you. You want to eat it. But then they say it's been offered to an idol. You have to walk away. That's just, it's the law. Moving to our second prohibition, the eating of blood. This is pretty simple. Going to Vayikra 17 verse 12. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood. Nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. It's very simple. You can take this back to Genesis. Blood is forbidden from any animal. Unclean or clean. Cannot do it. Third way food becomes, clean food becomes defiled, is strangled. And we just read this right in the next verse. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten. Did you get that? That may be eaten. He shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. Okay? You're to pour out the blood. You're to drain the blood. And the Jewish way of killing animals is the most merciful way that you can kill it because they respect God's creation and they don't seek harm to inflict on animals uh, because righteous men actually care about the well-being of their animals. And this we read in, in, in Proverbs. So this is something they're very, very careful to do. But there is a prescription. We don't strangle it because what ends up happening? The meat is mixed with the blood. That's what's happening. It hasn't been drained. Okay, so really wrapping this up, what we see James doing is he is drawing a perimeter around how clean food, food which has been created that we should be received, uh, sanctified by God, how it becomes unclean. And we need to be able to convey this. Isn't that interesting? The first thing that is delivered to the Gentiles is food laws. How preposterous is that? Because me growing up in, in, in my realm, of my arena of Christianity, you talk about food, it's irrelevant to me. I don't want to hear it. Yeshua declared all foods clean. So you're, you're, you're kind of wasting your time uh, not knowing that when Yeshua said, I declared all foods clean, the, the, the topic of the issue was not pork, okay? It was eating bread, bread with unwashed hands. And he said, that is totally fine. So it's, it's a really peculiar thing as you, as you talk about the spirit of Antichrist moving and arising and breaching the walls of the church. The very first thing commanded to Gentiles is the very thing that's been ripped out. That's been ripped out today. This is scary. Okay, so looking at this in Acts 15, three things. Things polluted by idol, from things strangled, from blood. Now we have the fourth thing. The fourth thing that Gentiles are commanded, and that is sexual immorality. Question, sexual immorality. I could line up 10 pagans in Corinth and I could go there and say, okay, here, you know, you know, keep the food laws here, the food laws don't do this. And you know what? Abstain from pornea, fornication. Just do that, have a nice day and walk away. I'm going to tell you right now, every one of those men, every one of them are going to have a different definition of what pornea really is, of what sexual immorality is. And so here's where I'm going. When you're talking about delivering these, these laws, when you're talking about telling Gentiles, oh, they, they need to abstain from pornea, from sexual immorality, how do you define the term? 
Because you cannot define the term apart from the Torah. I want you to think about that. You cannot... The, the, First of all, the resource in the pool that James and all the other apostles are drawing from is explicitly the Torah. All of these commandments are actually found in Leviticus 17 and 18. The definition to, to know what sexual morality is is Leviticus 18. And again, it's repeated in Leviticus 20. Comprehensively laid out in detail. There was no New Testament. That's not the resource they drew from. And even today, the New Testament is not the resource you would draw from for ultimately defining what sexual immorality is. Why do I say that? Because it says nothing about having a monogamous relationship with an animal. Nothing. And therefore, you know, like some of these conversations I've had with people, well, it's not in the New Testament, we don't got to worry about it. I beg to differ. Because you're using a measuring rod that the apostles never used. The apostles, the measuring rod they used was the Torah and the prophets. And the New Testament is a commentary on the Torah and the prophets, on the reality of it. And so to define this is critical. And so you need to understand, as they're telling this, you have the apostles, the elite of the elite of the church. When they're dealing with these things and they're bringing these things to their brethren, do not think for a moment they're just simply saying terms and leaving these Gentiles with terms. They're teaching them the Torah. They have to. They have to teach and they have to define these terms. They have to tell them, no, you can't marry your sister. You can't do that. No, you can't have a relationship with an animal, which is, you would think naturally would come to people. But if you're reading the news lately, over the last year, I think I've read seven articles where people have been caught having relations with an animal. Is because we're in the days of Noah. Okay, more than ever now, we need to be zealous for the Torah. We need to be zealous for the Torah. And so, looking at these things, these four things, we get back to the question, the looming question. Why these things? Where are the Ten Commandments? Where are the other commandments, for that matter? Why these? Why urgency? Well, we get our answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is what we read. Flee sexual immorality. That's the one of the four, right? You have the food laws and you have sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There it is. That's the key to understanding why these four commandments. Think about it. Every sin that a man does, it's outside the body. It goes forth out. Oh, wait a second. But if you commit sexual immorality, you are bringing sin in. It is coming in. Well, isn't that interesting because the food does the same thing. Whether I'm eating food polluted by idols, whether I'm eating blood or whatever, what is it doing? It's coming into this, the temple of the living God. Now look at this. The very next thing he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? This is the reality. Why these four commandments? Because judgment begins at the house of God. You must first purify your own temple so that the Holy Spirit will continue to dwell with you. All you need to do is start, start thumbing through your pages. Start looking at what happened to Israel when they defiled their temples. The actual physical temple was destroyed. When they started to defile it, God came in and destroyed it. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you defile this temple... God will destroy you. I mean, you want to talk about a lesson. Now we understand 
Why these four commandments? Why not thou shalt not kill? Why thou shalt not steal? And all these things. Now we understand, no, the first thing, the most urgent thing is, is purify it because the Holy Spirit wants to rest upon you and dwell within you to be holy. All right? So getting back to James chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 20. But we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Okay? He gives these four things. Do you think that's the end of the story? It's not. The very next verse says this. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, oh, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James is brilliant. He said, these four things must be first. They must purify the temple. This is where the Holy Spirit's dwelling. And I'm not worried about it because the Moses has had, is being preached in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, he understands that they're going to be hearing the Torah every week. That's what you call growing in faith. I'm going to hear the word of God. It's going to sow into me. See, this is about relationship. The Torah, and this is, this, is one of the, this is one of the things you need to realize. The Torah is about intimacy with God. Satan's come in and said, no, no, you don't want to hear that. It's a curse. No, the Torah is the voice of God. It is the character and nature of God. It is his likes. It is his dislikes. It's intimacy. It's relationship. He gets to talk to you. You ever think about relationship? It's, it's built on two things with God. Prayer and reading the word. Allowing God to speak to me and prayer, I'm speaking to him. That's a beautiful relationship. Take one of them out of the equation. It's a miserable marriage. You ever tried to talk to your spouse who won't talk back to you or won't listen to you at all? Absolutely refuses to listen to you. Miserable marriage. Miserable marriage. The Torah is the facilitator of a beautiful relationship between God and his people. It's his voice. We need to hear it. And let me take it a step further. It does something so critically important for us. It produces something inside of you that I'm going to tell you, if you don't have it, you're not going to make it. And what is that? Well, we go to Deuteronomy 31, verse 11. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this Torah. Everyone, okay, all Israel, before all Israel, in their hearing, verse 12, gather the people together, men, women, little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. What is the Torah doing? It's instilling fear. Not the fear of the world, but the fear of God. The fear of God. Why is that important? Proverbs 16, 6, that by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Do you want the strength to overcome temptation, trials, and tribulations? You're going to need the fear. You have to have the fear of the Lord. Take away that fear. What's going to happen? You're going to sin. You're going to give in. This is not an option for believers. We must have the fear of the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Oh, and we perfecting holiness in the fear of God. How is holiness perfected? 
Fear. We need fear. We got to have it. Psalm 103, verse 11. This is getting really controversial. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy to those who fear him. Hold on a second. So you're telling me I achieve and I receive the mercy of God through fear. You starting to see how important the fear of the Lord is? That fear of the Lord, I'm going to tell you right now, will have more strength and power than the fear of intimidation of the devil. Because the devil loves to play on our fears. He will hunt you down. He knows each and every one of you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears, things that scare you. And guess what he do? He'll embellish them. So you go home and you're in a corner sucking your thumb, spiritually speaking, and sometimes physically. I don't know. Hebrews 4.1, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. The writer of Hebrews saying, you better have this. You may fall short. We need the fear of the Lord. Do you think it's a coincidence that the devil has stripped the church of the law? Do you know the effects of what he has done? All he needs to do to destroy fear, oh, take the law out. Stop letting them hear the law. I will remove the fear and I will get them. Because they will cave into sin. Because this tells us we need the fear of the Lord. In fact, Exodus 20, 20, when Moses is at the mountain, the people are saying, no, don't let God speak to us because we're terrified. You speak with us. And Moses said, do not fear for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you, that you may not sin. That is the ticket. That is the key to surviving the tribulation. The fear of God. Be zealous for the Torah. Go back and listen to it. And yes, it will scare the daylights out of you. And that's exactly what we need. We need it. Because you know how rebellious your flesh is. Don't feed your flesh by removing the law. Listen to the Lord. Listen to his voice. Amen?